1 Peter chapter 3. We're going to read verses 8 to 12. We're going to sing, Speak, O Lord, and then Craig will come and, and open the word for us. So 1 Peter 3, reading from verse 8 to verse 12. My wee heading is suffering for righteousness' sake. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to those you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. That is the reading of God's word. Well, good morning, everyone. It's great to see you, and what a great meeting we've had so far, praising the Lord and hearing his word to the boys and girls and read and being led in prayer like that. It's a joy to be together. We just sung these words. Did you think about them? Test our thoughts and our attitudes. That's what this section of 1 Peter that we've been in for a few weeks now is all about. Test our thoughts and our attitudes. I hope, I hope you had a great time in your growth group on Wednesday night past, if you're, if you're part of a growth group, if you're not, as always, we uh, very warmly encourage you to make a point of joining one, and it's just a great opportunity to get to know a smaller group of the church family and to pray together and to chew over the word that is preached the Sunday or two before that meeting. It's a, it's a great time. We had a great time in the group that I was part of on Wednesday night, and one of the many contributions from members of that group that I found helpful was the question, well, where does all of this that we've been thinking about in Peter's teaching, where does it leave us? What kind of life is this going to look like for us as we begin to implement these things? What kind of life will it be for us if we apply what Peter is saying about thoughts and attitudes to the state and to the boss and in marriage and in other situations? I thought that was a great question. And it may well have crossed your mind, perhaps, on the two Sundays when Jonathan was showing us what Peter was saying about the believer's relationship to the state, the, the government, national and local, or the believer's relationship to his or her employer, or last week as I was taking us through what it means to be a Christian wife, even with an unbelieving husband, or to be a husband of a wife in verse 7 of chapter 3. Maybe you were thinking, what are the implications for this? What are the implications of chapter 2, verse 13? Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. What will it look like for a Christian to, to lead a life that is subject to what may be a government hostile to the gospel? Or chapter 2, verse 18. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. What kind of life will that lead to for us if our boss is, is a kind of self-centered, insecure, inconsiderate autocrat? 
Chapter 3, verse 1, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. What kind of life might that lead to for wives? How vulnerable might they be? How miserable might they be? What if their husbands persist in their rejection of the Lord and disobedience to his word? And that can happen. Just a little parenthesis on that. I, I had, had to cut my cloth last week. Believe it or not, 40 minutes in, that was me cutting my cloth. But I had to edit all that I wanted to say. And one of the things I probably should have said last week is that if an unbelieving husband of a Christian wife is not yet one to Christ, that does not imply a failure on the part of of his wife. Peter does not guarantee that every unbelieving marriage partner will be one to Christ. Rather, his point is that it will be both in the hearing of the gospel word and the seeing of the gospel lived that this great impact may be made. But what kind of life does this mean for a godly wife of a husband or a non-Christian husband? And what kind of life will this lead to for the husband who has to live with the pressure of knowing that the Lord sees the amount of effort, whether it's much or little, that he puts into getting to know his wife and honoring her so that he can do verse 7 well, honoring her as a joint heir with him of life. What kind of life is it going to be like to be under that pressure to know that the Lord will not hear him as he prays if he sees, if the Lord sees that this is a man who's not living in a way that understands and honors his wife? Where is all this teaching leading us? What is his life going to look like? What will our lives in our various capacities as these things hit us? How how are they going to be impacted? Well, Peter begins to answer these very questions today. And we're going to look today at verses 8 to 12 that Jonathan read. And we're going to see mainly two things. First of all, Peter gives us a general summary. And then in a moment or two, a great surprise. So first of all, a general summary. Summary. We now know the lie of the land. If we've been around here for uh, a few weeks, we know the lie of the land in this section. We've seen that Christians were being spoken against in their relationship to the state, in their relationship to their bosses, with husbands and wives. They were being spoken of, of as evildoers, chapter 2, verse 12, by the pagan community around them. And Peter has worked his way through these various relationships, giving the believers a God-centered view on the understanding. For example, chapter 2, verse 15, this is the will of God that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. There remains one more relationship that we'll come to in this book in which the Lord's people are called to be submissive. We'll see that, God willing, when we get to chapter 5, verse 5. But do you notice now, as he comes to this general summary, how he moves from these various relational settings, now he regroups everyone. Verse 8, finally, all of you. You with me? Finally, all of you. Uh, The... Those who are citizens, those who are slaves or employer, employees, those who are wives, those who are husbands, finally, all of you. And what does he say? Have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. And, and you can see as you look at verse 8 that he's describing a kind of inward personal disposition that results 
in an outward relational transformation, an inward personal disposition, unity of mind, a sympathy, that is a, a literally to, to, know, to try to know how others feel, a brotherly love, a familial love, a tender heart, a humble mind, a, a personal inward disposition that results in an outward relational transformation. You can just imagine the impact of this way of thinking in verse 8 on damaged relationships or even on just shallow relationships. Peter talks about this oneness of mindset among us, a, a gentle sense of being able to identify with one another in the circumstances of life, a strong bond of family love, a tenderness in our hearts, a humility in our minds that puts others ahead of ourselves and wants to be served rather than to serve. And you can't do verse 8 unless you know people. And that's why we're, we, we have these various initiatives. That's why we have growth groups. That's why we have meet the neighbors lunches, the first of which, as you've heard, begins today. That's why we have a newcomer's dinner. That's why we have coffee after the meetings and various things like that. These are not, these are not just peripheral things. These are strategic efforts to help us to do verses like this. You can't probably get to know everybody in this larger group, in this church family, to that level, but you can get to know some. And that's why we encourage you, as well as being part of the, the, the main assembly, also to be in a, in a smaller group for the sake of that. But what does this look like in verse 8? Who comes to mind when you think of this unity of mind, this sympathy, this fraternal love, this tender-hearted, humble mind? Isn't it just the picture of the Lord Jesus in the midst? And that is the key. He is the high priest who is able to sympathize with us, and therefore he calls us to have a sympathy with one another. He made us his followers. He made us his family. He was tender-hearted. He humbled himself, as we heard this morning from Laura, and became obedient to death, even the death on the cross. So these facets in verse 8 of the inner life is the new life in Christ. It's the new life of Christ in us that comes as a result of the new birth. And I was very struck this week to see, therefore, that it's not just the Christian wives who are to cultivate a beautiful inner life. Do you remember the wives in verse 4 who were to be characterized by the hidden person of the heart, the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is, in God's sight, is very precious. And why is it so precious to God? Because when God sees that in a wife in verse 4, he sees the work of his son. He sees the work of his son who went to the cross, who shed his precious blood so that we could be, chapter 1, verse 18 and 19, ransomed from the futile ways in which we used to live. So when he sees that beautiful, imperishable beauty of an inner life, of a gentle and quiet spirit, when he sees that, he rejoices in the work of his son being applied by the power of the spirit in that life. And it's fascinating now that men are not off the hook when it comes to cultivating gentleness and tenderness and sympathy and unity and humility. And we'll see in a moment something that was applied to the husbands in verse 7 now applied to everyone, including wives. We'll come to that if I remember. But Peter's summary 
is so interesting here. He, 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 he makes it crystal clear that this issue of the inner life that we saw so clearly laid out last week in verse 4 for the wives is not just for the wives. Finally, all of you cultivate this kind of inward personal life. Unity, sympathy, brotherly love, tender-hearted, humble-minded. And Peter's summary continues. He shows us from chapter 1, verse 15, what it means to be holy. That means to be attractively distinctive in all our conduct, as he called us to that in that verse. And now he outlines the outward impact of verse 8 in in, in the in, in our, sorry, the outward impact of our inward conduct. Verse 9. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called. It's very easy to read that, isn't it? It's very easy to kind of automatically assume we agree with that. Yeah, yes, yes, I get that. Very easy to do that. But let's face it, this is like climbing the north face of the Eiger in terms of difficulty. Giving as good as you got is absolutely natural and normative in this world. It's so much easier and much more instantly gratifying to batter somebody verbally rather than to bless them. So verse 9 is not easy. This is a remarkable thing that Peter is drawing our attention to. And remember from whom Peter first heard this teaching. Do you recall in Luke chapter 6, the Lord Jesus said, I say to you, to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. And after a long list that goes on there in Luke chapter 6 of seemingly impossible ways of reacting to the harm others do us, Jesus gives us the rationale for this in verse 35. He says, love your enemies and do good and you will be sons of the Most High. Now Jesus did not mean that this is how you become a member of God's family, but he did mean that this, this way of conducting yourself that is so countercultural. And let's face it, it's so counterintuitive. It's the opposite to the way we think. Peter's reminding us that this is the evidence that you are a blood-bought child of God. That you belong as a member of his family. Listen to how Jesus continues in verse 35. Love your enemies, do good and you'll be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. So the people who can do verse 8 and 9, who can love and bless their enemies, are those whose own hearts have been captivated by the kindness of God to them expressed at the cross. They are those who know that by nature they are, as I know by nature, I am, ungrateful and evil. That's me by nature. But I've been captivated, and if you're a believer, you've been captivated by the kindness of God revealed in his Son. And we now know how stunningly merciful God our Heavenly Father has been to us. And isn't that precisely the note that Peter struck as he began this whole section on how to get on with those who don't get us? 
Remember chapter 2, verse 10. Once you were not a people, but now you're God's people. Once you'd not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So Jesus says in Luke 6, be merciful, even as your Father is merciful to you, you be merciful to others. Peter's saying, you've received mercy. He says, verse 11 of chapter 2, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh that wage war against you and make you want to don't desperately to repay evil for evil, to repay reviling for reviling. No, he says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good, your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Yes, this blessing instead of cursing is very precious in God's sight. And it's actually very persuasive in the sight of the world. When people see the reality of the gospel, even though they don't believe it, when they see it lived out, the impact can be absolutely tremendous. So this is all part of God's plan to put the saving work of his son on display. How does God do that in the world? He does it by the proclamation of the gospel, by the setting forth of Christian truth from the pages of the word as we place ourselves under the authority of the word of God and as we herald the good news of what God has done for us in Christ. He does it by that, but he also does it as ordinary believers like you and me live out this new life, this renewed life that has come by the new birth. And as the impact of Christ in us is seen in our lives from day to day. So these verses spell the end and the death to individualism and to rivalry and to one-upmanship, don't they? This is the fleshing out of the gospel that gives the hostile world a credible alternative, as one writer has said, to its self-obsession. As people begin to see the Lord Jesus at work in the lives of his people. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called. And that's the second time, it may ring a bell with you, that Peter has reminded us that this is the path for those who belong to the Lord Jesus. Do you remember chapter 2, verse 20? If, you, if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God, for to this you've been called. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. So that's Peter's great summary of the kind of conduct that the gospel creates in the lives of those who've been transformed by it. Now we come to the second thing this morning, which is a great surprise. And this time I'll complete verse 9, nearly. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called that you may... Now pause there for a moment. What's he going to say? Pretend you haven't read it. Pre pretend for a moment you didn't hear Jonathan read it earlier on. Pretend you don't know what comes next. What is he going to say? Where is all this leading? That was the question from our house group on Wednesday evening that I found so helpful. Honor the government even when they're unworthy of that honor. Be the best workers you can be, even when your boss is a crab. Be a loving and submissive wife, even when your husband doesn't share your faith and may mock you. Don't repay evil for evil. Don't repay reviling for reviling. Instead of cursing, bless. 
that you may what? Develop a persecution complex? No. Be completely worn out in the misery of this? No. Learn to toughen up a bit? No. Here's the surprise Peter has for us. End of verse 9. That you may obtain a blessing. Where is all this leading is the question. This sounds very tough. Submission to a gospel that might be a, a, a government that might be hostile. Submission to a boss that might be hostile. Submission to a husband that might be hostile. This sounds as if it's leading to a, to a, to a misery of a life. What is it leading to? That you may obtain a blessing. That's a surprise. And then Peter takes us back to Psalm 34 to help us see the kind of life that this conduct leads to. Verse 10, for whoever desires to love life and see good days. So we're in the psalm now and we're being asked if we want to love our life. We're being asked this morning as Peter's readers were being asked when first they read his letter, would you like to live a kind of life that you just love? If you want to say to each other, these are good days that we're living through. Even, we, even though we're being spoken against, even though we have a largely unsympathetic government, even though we have a miserable boss, even though we have lots of complexities in family and marriage life, nonetheless, life is good. I love my life. These are good days. Now, that's a surprise, isn't it? Surprise me. And what Peter does is to show us from verse 34 that the way to this blessing that verse 9 speaks of, the way to this life that you love, the way to these good days is to have two things. It's to have the same kind of conduct in our lives that he's been teaching us about and the same kind of confidence in our Lord that he's been teaching us about. So here's the way to experience this wonderful blessing, these, this kind of life that you will love, irrespective of the, the, the difficulties and the challenges. A life that you will love, days that are good. Number one, pursue this conduct in our lives. Have a look at verse 10. Whoever desires to, this is a quotation from Psalm 34, whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. And I want you to see that this is Peter giving us an Old Testament quotation from Psalm 34 that is talking about the very things that he has been talking about all the way through the tail end of chapter 2 and into chapter 3. And Peter and the psalm are very practical in the help that they give us this morning. If the question in your mind, and I hope it is this, if the question is, well, how do I live like that? How do I live such a life that I might know this blessing of verse 9, that I may obtain this blessing? Because I do desire to love life, and I do desire to see good days. What would that look like? Well, it looks like pursuing this conduct. And you'll notice that it begins with repentance and resolve. Repentance is implied, isn't it, in verse 11? Because the assumption of verse 11 is that by nature, we do not keep our tongues from evil and our lips from speaking deceit. 
The assumption of verse 11 is that anger and envy and irritability and selfishness and revenge and dishonesty and deceit just pour forth naturally from our tongues and from our lips. So let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. Let him turn away from it. And seek peace. Not anarchy in bringing the government down. Not insolence and retaliating to the weakness of a very poor and irritating boss. Not fragmentation and devaluing the marriage because of the associated challenges. Seek peace. Pursue it. But you see there in verse 11 that there has to be a, a turning from to. You turn from to. And that's how the Christian life begins. That's how the Christian life continues. It begins as we turn from a life of rebellion against the Lord to the Lord Jesus, as we turn from pleasing ourselves to pleasing to him, as we turn from relying on ourselves to trusting completely in him. That's how the Christian life begins, and that's how the Christian life continues. Just on Friday there, I gave thanks to God that it's 49 years. I know you look at me and you think it's impossible, but it's 49 years since I came to know the Lord. That was a joke. 49 years since I came to know the Lord. Since I first actually put my trust in him. Since I was led in prayer by my dad to say, Lord Jesus, now I turn from this to you. I confess my sin, I turn to you. And do you know this, 49 years later, that's exactly what I'm still doing every day. The Christian life is a life of continually turning back to the Lord. So it's a life of repentance. It's a life of resolve. Verse 10, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Repentance and resolve. And I don't know about you, but since last Sunday even, to give an example since last Sunday, I've been so much more aware of my proneness not to live with my life in an under, with my wife in an understanding way. I've been so aware of my proneness to be very selfish and not to honor her in the way that verse 7 of chapter 3 says I should. I've been very aware of my need to keep repenting and keep resolving. And that sounds like, oh, you've had a horrible week, Craig. But it, and and it, it is grim to see the proneness of your own heart. But I'll tell you, there is great joy in that. There is great joy for the person who keeps seeing their sin, who keeps turning back to the Lord in repentance and keeps resolving to keep their tongue from evil and their lips from speaking deceit. I hope you're finding that you love that life. I hope you're finding that these are good days. You don't love your life because you've got everything sussed and you become a perfect person. They're not good days because you don't have any sin to repent of. You love your life and these are good days because you are living close to God and keeping short accounts with him. And when you're convicted of your sin, the Lord Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit, takes you immediately to, be, to remember what was accomplished for you in Calvary, where it was dealt with. And how that cleansing is available to you instantaneously you turn to him. Oh friends, that makes for a good life. That makes for good days. 
this conduct in our lives. Secondly and finally, this confidence in our Lord. Verse 12. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So there's two types of confidence we can have in the Lord here. Let's take the second part of the verse. You and I can have confidence that none of this conduct to which we are called, this not retaliating but blessing, none of that means that God has gone soft on those who do evil, on those who may have done his people significant harm or may yet do his people significant harm. The fact that the face of the Lord is against those who do evil gives us confidence in God that this whole thing that Peter's been talking to us about, submission to the governing authorities, submission to the boss, submission in marriage, it gives us a reassurance that God has not gone soft on evil. That he's not calling his people to live like this because he's become like a, a, a kind of heavenly great-grandfather who's grown tolerant of conduct that in an earlier phase of life he would have called out. No. Brothers and sisters, you can have a good life. You can have, a, you can have good days and love your life because you've got confidence in the fact that your God, your Lord, sees the crookedness of government at a national or a local level. He sees the hostility of governing capacity towards the gospel. He sees the brutal boss in the workplace that your stomach goes into a knot as you think about Monday morning again. He sees the selfish husband. He sees the selfish wife. He knows about all the evil things that are done in this world in general. And to his people... He sees the evil that is done to us and he still calls it evil and he will deal with it as such on a coming day. The second part of verse 12 gives us this confidence in the Lord that nothing we've seen over the last number of weeks about how we are to respond with Christ in our lives in these various situations. And none of this is because God has gone soft and changed his mind about how he will deal with it. We're going to hear this in detail, Lord willing, when we get to chapter 5. We're going to read verses like this, verse 17. It's time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So, there's a good life, there's good days, there's a, there's a life that you can love in having this confidence in your God that even though he calls you because it's the example of the Lord Jesus to submit to those who at times may be unkind or worse to you, there's a confidence in knowing this is not the end of that. The second half, half of that, verse 12 makes it very plain that the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. The way that the Lord's people are called to conduct themselves to those who may visit evil upon them does not reflect how the Lord himself will finally deal with those who refuse to repent. It's very important to get that clear, isn't it? You can love your life. 
You can have good days even amid suffering when you have confidence in your Lord. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And that, doesn't that remind us of what I was saying earlier on? That it's not, just as it's not just the wives from chapter 3 verse 4 who've got to cultivate a beautiful inner life. Finally, all of you, we've all got to do that in verse 8. And also this reminds us that it's not just the husbands in verse 7 whose prayers will be hindered by mistreatment of their wives. That is true. But this verse tells us he turns his face on all who persist in godless living. The wife as well. The woman as well. The married and the unmarried. And the good days and the lovely life just gets better when we see the first part of this verse. His eyes are the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. His ears are open to their prayer. Now the righteous here aren't self-righteous. They're not people who are very impressed with themselves and who think they're better than everybody else. That's not what that means. Nor are they perfect. The righteous in the Bible are sinners who have repented and turned to the Lord and keep repenting and turning to the Lord and whose lives are characterized by the kind of conduct that Peter's been talking about that requires a continual cycle of repentance and resolve. That's who the righteous are. Wonderfully, they are those to whom has been given the righteousness of the Lord Jesus. That when he went to the cross, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. He took our sin and he gives us the gift of his righteousness. Isn't that glorious? And isn't it thrilling as you look at verse 12 now as we finish and come to the Lord's table. Isn't it thrilling that the God of the universe, he knows you, sister, brother. He knows you. He knows your life. The God of the universe knows you as a citizen of the state. And he knows all about the state and all about the laws and all about the pressures. He knows you as an employee with a boss. And he knows all about the snides and all about the unfairness and all about the gossip and all about the mistreatment. He knows you as a married person with a partner and he knows all about the pressure and all about the stress and all about the fear you have in submitting. He knows you as a believer being mistreated. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. His ears are open to their prayer. That means his eyes are focused to see you and his ears are open to hear you. We are not talking here just about an ordinary person. We're talking about the God of the universe who upholds this whole universe by the power of his word. And his eyes are focused to see you and his ears are open to hear you. And if you live with that awareness, whatever else is going on in your life, whatever ups and downs we face, whatever challenges, whatever difficulties, whatever things happen that we would rather would not come into our lives, this is the way that you can love life and see good days. By pursuing this conduct in our lives and by pursuing this confidence in our Lord. Let's pray together. So would you help us, our Heavenly Father, this morning to align our views and our expectations of what we've been looking at for these last few weeks with what we've seen this morning. What we've been looking at may just have sounded 
difficult to us, Heavenly Father. Like an extraordinarily complex and tortuous assault course. But now you've told us this morning all of this that we may obtain a blessing. All of this that we may love life and see good days. Please make this a reality for us. Not just for our benefit, glorious though that is, but that the work of your son on the cross 2,000 years ago would be seen gloriously in the lives of those who are now called to be his children. That in our town and in our communities and in our nation and in the nations of the world, the Lord Jesus would be lifted high. And that those who have no time for him and blaspheme him and ignore and traduce his people might see the glorious reality of the new birth producing this new life. And may glorify God in the day when in mercy he comes by his gospel and by gospel people to visit them and to call them to repentance. Granted our God, we pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen.